he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Alright, so they're going through some grain fields on the Sabbath. The disciples are grabbing some grain and doing what they have to do to get the grain out of the husks and eating it. And the Pharisees are upset, saying, why do you do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? They are kind of like the self-appointed Sabbath police, and they thought they'd caught the Jesus' disciples red-handed. Um, and, you know, for us it looks bad, because, like, was it their grain in their fields? So it's like, what are they doing taking somebody else's grain out of their field? And probably all of you know the answer to that. Uh, passages like Deuteronomy 23:25 specifically permit the Jews to do this. You couldn't use an instrument to reap with. You couldn't take them home in a basket. But you could grab with your hands and eat whatever you could eat as you were passing through. So it was the Jews' way of avoiding needing McDonald's. Uh, it makes sense, really. That's not a bad rule. And that was, so I don't think there's any question about them stealing. I don't think anybody's saying that, but it's the Sabbath day. And so from the Pharisees' tradition standpoint, the disciples were reaping and threshing and winnowing and preparing food, which would be on a quadruple violation of their traditions about the Sabbath day. And, uh, you kind of get the impression they got an eye on them pretty much all the time looking for something. And, uh, and their rules about the Sabbath wouldn't quit. It's crazy. You know, you weren't supposed to work. Well, they define work as practically breathing. Uh, so, Jesus' answer, though, is puzzling. Have you never, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? That is controversial, and I will tell you, first of all, what I, I believe by far the two most common positions on what Jesus is saying there. One is that if David, the king, could set aside the law about the showbread because of his position, Jesus is even a greater king, so Jesus can do that even more so. Um... And that's a very common view, that Jesus is the greater David. So if it's okay for David to eat bread that he was really not allowed to eat by the law, how much more Jesus and his disciples can eat what's not allowed by the law. After all, he's the king. So he's kind of over the law. The problem I see with that is, did Jesus ever use his position to set aside God's law? You know, and if he did, was he perfect? I mean, or are we saying that there was nothing sinful for Jesus? If he wanted to do something, it was okay since he's Jesus. Well, that kind of that kind of uh, changes the playing field. I mean, how is he tempted in all points like as we are if everything he did was by definition okay? So I don't think that's a good explanation. Probably the even more common explanation is... Need takes precedence over the law. Kind of like saying, all right, there is a hierarchy of laws. And and the law of mercy and loves trumps the law of the showbread or whatever. So that because 
you know, mercy is more important than who could eat the showbread, that it was okay for David to eat that. And that since, you know, the disciples are hungry here, then it's okay for them to do things on the Sabbath day, even though under normal circumstances you keep the Sabbath laws. Well, I have a problem with that. For one thing, does need take precedence over law, over God's rules and regulations and commandments? And if so, what laws can you set aside if you need to? If you're really hungry, can you steal something? I mean, and, and remember, I mean, as far as we can tell, there's no indication that David or Jesus' disciples were like starving to death. You know, we're not assuming that they've been fasting for 40 days or something like that. They're just hungry. So if I get hungry, can I just break into a restaurant and grab some food? You know, after all, I'm hungry. I need it. I just don't think that, even though that is a really popular explanation, I, I think it's got holes in it. I really think it's got some other holes in it. I mean, think about the passage in 1 Samuel 21 where David ate that showbread. In the context, this was a time when David's faith was failing. Saul was trying to get him and he came so close so many times that David says there's only a step between me and death. Was there? I say no. He's the anointed king. There's certainly not a step between him and death until he gets appointed king because God's anointing is not going to be void. Um, and, and I think he really shows in 1st 721 all kinds of other sins. I mean, I think he lied about supposed to be in this feast in Bethlehem when Jonathan explained why he wasn't there at the table. He lied about it when he came to the priests. He said he was on some top secret mission for Saul. The truth is he was fleeing from him. You know, he trusted in Goliath's sword, not in the Lord. He, he defected to the enemy, to the Philistines, and had to fake being a madman to get out of that one. And as a result of everything David did, Saul massacred the priests. Only one escaped. And David says in 1 Samuel 22, 22, I brought about the death of the Lord's priests. I think he realizes his misbehavior at the tabernacle was part of why the priests died. So, think about this as my overall critique of those positions. Jesus said it wasn't lawful for him to eat it. Leviticus 24.9 specifically says the showbread is to be eaten by Aaron and his sons, by the priests and no one else. Um, the context of verse 721 shows what David did was wrong. I don't think Jesus' disciples broke any law anyway. They only broke the Sabbath tradition. And I don't think Jesus believed in setting aside laws in emergencies. What about the temptation when he really was hungry and Satan says, turn these stones to bread. And he says, we don't eat by bread alone. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If I understand that, that's saying that you follow the Lord's word, that's more important than eating as far as living is concerned. So I think Jesus is saying just the opposite. You don't break God's word, even if you need bread. That God's word is your life source. I think the stronger position, I will admit, I can critique the other positions better than I can come up with an alternative. But I think the better position is, they were inconsistent, and Jesus shows it. They justified David when he broke the law, 
they condemned Jesus and his disciples for merely violating their traditions. So I think he's showing they are just totally inconsistent. David was their hero. He broke the law now. He, he ate. They vilified Jesus and the disciples, and they're keeping the law, just violating Pharisaic traditions. Now, that's that's a controversial question, so do you have some questions or comments about that? So people who argue those other things, they would have to be saying that Jesus is breaking a Sabbath law here, or else it doesn't make sense. Yes. I'm not sure all of them would say he's breaking a Sabbath law, but you're right. That would be the analogy. Right. You know, except they'd say it's not breaking it because mercy is. But they're more saying there's thing. some law that says you can't do this. Right, but they're saying there's a higher law. <laughs> oh, I understand that, yeah. but I'm just wondering is there a law they can point to in the Old Testament? I don't think there is. Says that. No, I don't okay. think there is. So they're just assuming that the Pharisees are right and that. Or in some cases, I'm not sure they would say the Pharisees are right, but then their parallel does break down, I think. Right. I agree. Okay. Yeah. A lot of brethren would take that mercy argument. Probably the majority of knowledgeable brethren. Um, but I just don't see it. So what's the argument against what you're saying? I don't know that I hear a lot of arguments against it, but I think the argument against it is it's just not very clear. It's just not very obvious that Jesus was using kind of an ad hominem argument. You know, it would seem as you read through it, he's using David to justify what he did. But I'm saying, really, he's using David to show they're inconsistent and condemning him. I don't think that's the most natural reading when you first go through it. I think that's the objection. But I think it fits more with all of Jesus' other answers. You know, when does Good he point. ever answer a question directly right. the way they asked it? Right. And in that case, they're arguing, well, he did answer this one indirectly. He gave a per- he gave an example of why it's okay. Right. That's totally inconsistent with everything else he answers. Yes. I can buy that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I just think there's no... I, I don't know what the other alternative is. And I don't think those first two explanations are possible. You know, even though a lot of good brethren would say that, I don't think brethren tend to follow out on the implications of those arguments. Especially the mercy argument, which I think is much more popular. But do we really believe that if you're really hungry, you can set aside the law? I mean, I don't think we... I mean, what does that mean? What What can you do? I, I, I mean... Proverbs, what is it? Proverbs 6 or something like that says you, you blame a thief when he steals even when he's hungry. You know, I mean, much more when you steal somebody's wife. You know, you'll, I mean, you realize he did it because he was hungry and he needed it, but still, you know, you condemn him. So, I don't know. I have a harder time with Matthew twelve five though. Like, I don't know yes. what that means. I agree. And I think that is, Matthew makes it a bit more challenging uh, in a couple of ways. It's easier to deal with Luke. Uh, but yeah, he says, after dealing with David in verses 3 and 4, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. So I take that as, okay, your view of the Sabbath is incorrect. But that the, the priests quote unquote break the Sabbath because they still work, they offer sacrifice and all that. So what is that saying about 
God's law on the Sabbath day. It was not intended to, you know, enforce total inactivity. So they break the Sabbath, but but just breaking it in the Pharisees' minds, you know, in their tradition and the way they define it. Uh, but yet, what they do is, you know, they they're innocent. So what they're doing isn't really work. So I would take. Verse 5, not is saying the same thing as verse 3 and 4. Right. That's where that ends up coming out. Again, I'm not, it's not like I'm just saying that's an awesome explanation. You know, if somebody came up with something better, I'd be open to it. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. But you're right. That is, that's definitely the harder passage. So, all right, well, good to think about that. Um, Look at verse 5. I'm back, I'm back in Luke 6. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, now again, on their view, that means, well, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, therefore he can break it whenever he wants to. Well, I mean, if that's true, and if he did, then how is he sinless? Or if the law just doesn't apply to him, then how is he, you know, tempted in all points like we are? You know, if Jesus could break the law and it wasn't sin, well, you know, to me, that kind of rigs the whole system. Then then he could never sin. Uh, I think better than that is, he's the one who gave the Sabbath law. He ought to know what breaks it. He ought to know how to properly interpret it. You know, he is the fulfillment of it also. He's our rest. But I think in this context, you know, he really knows what the Sabbath law means of all people. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know. I mean, you challenge the boss's rule, you say, you know, wait a minute, you know, this is wrong, you made this rule, and the boss says, wait a minute, I made the rule, and here's what it means. You know, I'm the one who made the rule, I know what it means. Don't you tell me what my rule means. This is Jesus' rule, he made the Sabbath law, he knows what it means. Alright, that's that. Thoughts or questions on the first five verses. And again, just being consistent, when you get to verse 5, it's an add-on. Andy was telling them, addressing a different... Point. Angle, yeah, yeah. a different thing. Yeah. Just like back in 36, the previous chapter. You know, he went and he told them one thing, and then Andy was telling him, kind of related to the question, but another angle of, right. of the answer. Right. Good point. I would agree. All right. Uh, 6 through 11. You can read 10 or 15. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. He rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or destroy it? And looking around at them, he said to to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, okay. So this is a different Sabbath. Uh, Same problem. So he's in the synagogue, and he's teaching. And there's a guy there whose right hand is withered. You know, I believe Luke is the only one who gives us that detail. It's his right hand that's withered. 
that would accentuate the handicap because most people are right-handed. And uh, I read that ancient medical writers always say whether it's the right or left member affected, that that was a typical way they'd write. Probably would too, most of the time, in a more technical sense. And uh, have you ever wondered what that looked like? Well, I, I always remember Mike Stevens in my second, third grade class. I, you know, when you're second, third grade, you don't ask questions. Mike was perfectly normal in one arm and hand, but this other arm had this little bitty arm and a little withered up hand on the end of it. You know, I guess, I figured he probably had a birth defect or something, I don't know. But, you know, as a kid, you just don't ask that. He was perfectly normal, perfectly good. He was pretty good with that one arm and hand. He could do quite a bit, even in sports. You know, he was a pretty athletic kid. But, uh, but you know, we always noticed. I mean, I noticed. I mean, I, like I said, I don't really even I don't remember other kids even talking about it. Because I came into the school in second grade about the middle of the year. So, you know, if it was talked about, it was probably back in kindergarten or something. But uh, but that's what I re- imagine. Who knows what it looked like. But that's, I always see Mike when I see that. And... Uh, and, you know, look at where they're at. Scribes and Pharisees are watching him closely. You know, they're seeking a reason to uh, accuse him. You know, I mean, they are really on top of Jesus. You know, they they are scrutinizing everything. This They may have put him here as kind of a setup, see if Jesus will do something. And uh, Jesus, though, has the man come front and center. He's not going to do this secretly, you know. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to destroy it? Well, that's a good question. Kind of puts them on the spot. We don't read about their answer. And surely no one would say it's right to destroy a life on the Sabbath, would they? And so, Jesus, well, Jesus healed the man, but he didn't do it in the customary way. Jesus did a lot, had a lot of healing techniques. Do you remember some of his healing techniques? Yeah. Well, one time he just spit directly in the eye. <laughs> yeah. And remember when he healed that deaf guy? Deaf mute? Yeah, put his finger in his ears and then spit on his finger, I guess, and touch the saliva into the guy's tongue. He touched the leper and healed. Yeah, at various yeah. times he touched people and healed them. And sometimes people touched him and healed them. That's right. <laughs> There's quite, I mean, it's not like one size fits all there. So what did Jesus do here? Spoke. Yeah, he didn't do anything. He just said, stretch out your hand. Believe it or not, not even the uh, scribes and Pharisees thought it was wrong to stretch your hand out on Sabbath day <laughs> or just tell somebody to. And so what can they accuse Jesus of in this? I mean, if they accuse him of actually healing the hand, that's kind of not what they wanted to accentuate. You know, they'd like to claim that he didn't do that. So, I mean, they'd like to accuse him of practicing medicine, but if all he says is stretch out your hand and the guy actually did, I mean... They're kind of stymied. How do you feel when you get outsmarted? Um, yeah. Or maybe offensive in this case. They did, they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. You know, I mean, <laughs> they're furious. 
You know, they are so bent on their rules and regulations. They love that more than they love God. And, oh, this infuriates them. And so, what kind of things are they imagining they might do to Jesus? Killing him. So who thinks it might be lawful to destroy somebody on the Sabbath day? That sounded like overkill when Jesus said it. He knows what they're about to do. It's horrible to heal a man on the Sabbath day, but perfectly okay to plot murder. What kind of a conscience is that? Isn't that crazy? And again, bad I think they ought to just give up even being around Jesus. Every time they do or say anything, he makes them look like the idiots they were. Alright, questions or comments through 11? Timothy. Um, it kind of reminds me of in Revelation, where the dragon keeps trying to, like, there were three times that he got defeated, and he was really angry. And then this is what just keeps happening to them. Jesus always has something to say. Makes makes you angry when when you, they thought they had him, and he you know walks out smelling like a rose and leaving them bumbling and fumbling and stumbling. All right, uh, twelve to sixteen. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Okay, so that's an important uh, time for Jesus picking the twelve. And to prepare for that, he goes off to the mountain and prays all night. Obviously, we see a lot of times the importance of prayer in the life of Jesus. But I think especially at a time when you choose someone for a special function, it's an appropriate time to pray. Can you think of times in the book of Acts when they would pray in connection with choosing people for a special work? chose the seven? When he, they chose the seven, yeah. Acts 6-6. Acts 6-6, uh-huh. What else? What else did they pray when they chose somebody in Acts? Mm. Matthias? Yes! They prayed to Jesus when they chose Matthias over the other candidate for the apostle. Good. What else? mentioned when they chose when they was it Barnabas or whenever to send who they were sending or Barnabas and Saul when they sent him out from Antioch they were fasting and praying God indicated they should choose them and in Acts 14 when they chose the elders in every church they prayed with fasting it, it makes sense to me that you would especially pray when you're choosing somebody for some important job you know and and so I think Jesus felt the need to pray all night. Uh, I think he needed the Father's guidance. Um, and and so you know I, I think sometimes we make awfully big decisions with awfully little prayer. 
So he chooses these 12. What do I 12? I think it's a number for God's people, and he's choosing a new set of 12, kind of new leadership for God's people. Instead of the 12 tribes, now it's going to be the 12 apostles. And uh, he, he gives the names. Um, there's a number of interesting things about the names. I think Bartholomew is the same as Nathaniel. Not everybody agrees with me on that. I think Judas, uh, here the son of James in verse 16, is the same as Thaddeus. Uh, I think Matthew is the same as Levi. Uh, I think Simon the Zealot uh, was a terrorist, or had been before Jesus called him. And Judas, who became a traitor, I mean, he drags that phrase like a ball and chain around with him all over the Gospels he goes. There's hardly a time it mentioned his name when it doesn't say who betrayed Jesus. It's like they couldn't even think about him without remembering that, you know. Uh, so that's interesting. Thoughts and comments on the choosing of the twelve? It's interesting that they aren't afraid of saying that Judas was the traitor. If this were some kind of a human scheme, like I think maybe you just wouldn't mention Judas or downplay it. Yeah, just downplay it and you know not really finish Judas's story in the Gospels. <laughs> yeah, because it's a little disconcerting. Can somebody spend that much time with Jesus and be that close to Jesus and turn around and sell him? You just think that couldn't happen. So, I mean, could some really, really, really respected brother or sister fall flat on their face and do some horrible thing? Yeah. Don't be distorted by that. I mean, it's happened. It happened here. Other thoughts? Who's the guy that you said was a terrorist? Simon the Zealot. Where do you get that idea? The Zealots were terrorists, essentially. They were trying to throw off Roman rule. Uh, now, not everybody's in agreement on that one, either. What would they say? Well, they w- some people argue that there weren't Zealots that early on. So maybe he's just like a zealous person. <laughs> the, <laughs> And, and I think, yes, I understand, the evidence is not conclusive that there were zealots this early. But I think the one thing that convinces me that he was a zealot in that sense is that by the time Luke wrote this, that is what zealot meant. The zealots were a clearly defined group by then. If he calls Simon the zealot and writes this in the 60s, when that's what everybody thought of when they thought of zealot, then... I don't think he would expect them to think, oh, but there weren't zealots back then, so maybe he was just a zealous guy. So I think, you know, even though we can't, you know, absolutely prove there were zealots that early, I suspect that, you know, that's exactly what he was. So, but that is a debatable issue. You were saying you think so-and-so is so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so is so-and-so. Obviously, there's 12 people listed here. Can we explain that? Yes. Okay. Uh, Matthew and Levi are pretty simple. Very parallel stories about them being called in the different Gospels. 
and it appears that he just had two names, you know, because it says virtually the same thing about the call and the banquet that he had for Jesus and so forth. Almost everybody accepts that. Um, Judas, the son of James, pretty much has to be Thaddeus because otherwise you can't match him up. You know, you got Judas of James here, you got Thaddeus in the other accounts, and he's, they're the only ones that don't have a match, you know. So, um, I'm guessing that the other Gospels call him Thaddeus, which might have been like his middle name or something, because of the connotations of the name Judas. Yeah, you know, he kind of, I don't know. We, we, had you thought about maybe Judas is Calvin's name? Uh, you know, it's just not, we're probably not going to do that, you know, to our children. Um, the more complicated one is Bartholomew being Nathaniel. So here's my, here's my case for that. This is a common thought, but it's not conclusive. Bartholomew, when you get a bar name in the New Testament, that means son of. So he's son of Tholomew. That's his last name. It doesn't tell you what his first name was. The synoptics, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, never mention Nathaniel. John never mentions Bartholomew. Every list except the one in Acts puts Bartholomew with Philip. And we know that Philip found Nathaniel and called him. They were close. Uh, and John 21, after Jesus is raised, in John 21, 2, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Now, Simon Peter was an apostle, Thomas was an apostle. The sons of Zebedee were apostles. We don't know who the two other disciples were. He doesn't name them. But I'm guessing we're dealing with members of the Twelve, which would say that Nathaniel has to be one of the Twelve. And I say, well, Nathaniel was his first name. His last name was Bartholomew, the son of Tholomew. So, doesn't matter to me. But I think that's a reasonably strong case, even if I can't absolutely prove it, and I wouldn't stake my life on it. What would other people say? I think most people would agree with that if they've, if they've looked into it. I, I don't know that there's a lot of controversy. And some people would just say it's an unproven you know, assumption. But but people who really study it, I mean, that became at least more popular 150 years ago with somebody who really looked into it and presented that well. I, I think it's in the, there's a book called The Training of the Twelve by a, a guy named Bruce back in the 1800s. And he did, I thought he, I read the book, and he did a good job on that, I thought, made made the case pretty clearly. So I think most people followed him in that. But, you know, like I say, it doesn't matter, but I do think that's probably the case. It's nice some of those things don't matter, so, you know, we're wrong, we're wrong. It's so interesting, though. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, I think it's worth mentioning, but not worth measuring. It's interesting having a zealot and a tax collector. In the same circle. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> they were not, not natural bedfellows. No. But it's not what the gospel does. You know, I mean, think about the Jews and the Gentiles. Wow. Or the Jews and the Samaritans, for that matter. You know, and I mean, that's what needs to happen today. You know, and we struggle with that a little bit sometimes. But, wow, there ought to be absolute unity. I don't care how different our backgrounds are, our political views are, you know, or our social class, or, you know, whatever. We need to be united in Christ.
Okay. Um, well, the next section begins uh, a, the sermon that Jesus preaches here. So let's go ahead and uh, read 17 to 26. And he descended with them and stood on a level place, and there was a great multitude of his disciples, and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze on his disciples, began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat false prophets. Okay, so you see Jesus, a large crowd. Notice they're coming for several reasons. They're coming to hear him teach, coming to be healed of their diseases, and they're coming to be uh, freed from demons. Those are the three biggest reasons, it seems to me, that people came to Jesus in this time period. But Jesus doesn't waste a good crowd to teach. He's he's going to be right there with the teaching. You know that's that's perhaps of these things the thing Jesus cared about the most. Um, so there's a debate about whether or not this is the same as the Sermon on the Mount because there's a lot of parallels. Um, although <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount seemed to have been on the mount and this is on a level place, so that doesn't necessarily match up unless you think maybe a level place in the mountains, which is possible. But it might not be their first thought. Um, my guess is this isn't the same sermon, but Jesus preached a lot of similar things in different places. You know, I preach a lot of similar things in different places. They're not the same sermon, but a lot alike, because, you know, there's only so many things I know, so you have to kind of say them the way you know them. And uh, Jesus probably wasn't limited by that, but... But, I mean, I assume that people needed the same message in different places, but not, not that Jesus preached exactly word for word the same thing. So my guess is this is a different occasion where he preached a similar sermon, but who knows. All right, so comments and questions through verse 19. So he goes through these blessings and these woes. And kind of reminds you of the Sermon on the Mount, because he had the blessings. But, wow, the things he says... You know, and blessed meaning like, you know, what a blessing it is, or something like that. It's like, what? <laughs> These aren't the blessed people, you know? And when he says the woes, it's like, well, I'd like to have a woe like that. <laughs> you know, so this is really disconcerting. And not quite the same as it is in Matthew. So, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, verse 20. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. For you're receiving your comfort in full. <laughs> Would we pronounce a blessing on the poor? You know, maybe they need a blessing. Well, we wouldn't say it's just a tremendous blessing to be poor, and it's such a liability to be rich. So that's the way Jesus is looking at that. Why is it so much better to be poor? Well, 
for yours is the kingdom of God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People aren't going to be thinking highly of you. Okay. Yeah, I think that's the idea. I mean, if you're poor, where can you turn? You're not going to turn to the bank. <laughs> you know, your investments. I mean, I think it drives you to depend more on the Lord, to see your need for God more. You know, you can't be self-sufficient, self-reliant. You know, whereas he says in verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you're receiving comfort full. I mean, how do rich people tend to feel? Secure. Secure. That's probably the best word. Yes. Secure is an excellent word. Prideful sometimes. And uh, self-sufficient, self-reliant. Kind of lulls you into this false sense of self-confidence. And... You know, so I mean, he's saying it's a blessing for you who are poor. Woe to you who are rich. So, but that's not what we think. You know, um, what do you most desire for your children? I hope they stay poor. <laughs> well, maybe we ought to. I'm not so sure that wouldn't be the better thing to wish for them. Um, but I think I think it's soul searching to think about this. Of course, you know what we say is, well, I'm sure glad I'm poor. <laughs> well, I read, this was cool, I thought. Uh, I read in a commentary. You know, woe to you who are rich applies to those who can afford to buy a copy of this commentary, check it out of a library, or download it to a computer and read it. <laughs> you know, and uh, that's right. You know, wow. Um, so, I think I think it's hard for us not to be too self-sufficient, self-reliant, I think it's hard for us to sense our need for God, our dependence on God. You know, I think we tend to feel like we're not vulnerable. You know, we've got it all under control. So we've got to really work on this as people who are rich, not to let the riches overtake us. And then he does, he does these contrasts. So verse 21 is, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. And uh, verse 25, what are you who are well fed now, for you should be hungry. Similar idea. The hungry people know their need. Uh, the well fed tend to be self-satisfied, self-indulgent, and not really care about others. And then he does the woe to you, uh, uh, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Uh, so... You know, the weepers do better than the laughers. I mean, maybe weeping over our sins, grieving over that. And, and when you think about somebody, those who laugh, you think about almost somebody being giddy, somebody who's not really serious, not worried about spiritual things, just kind of having a merry old time. Um, and then the one he stresses the most is 22 and 23, blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you, insult you, scorn your name as evil. You know, be glad. <laughs> this is wonderful. They they put you down. They speak about you badly and all that. And woe to you when all one speak well of you. Ah! Isn't that what we want? We want people to speak well of us. We want them to accept us. We want them to like us. And so he's putting a woe on the thing we most like. I think there's a lot to think about in that. Um... You know, a true prophet's often too uncomfortable to be popular. You know, um, 
Wes. The popular guy, he never makes waves, you know, he never rocks the boat, you know, he just kind of makes us happy where we're at. So thoughts and comments on that section. Yes, so when you compare those to Matthew, they're obviously not identical in any way. I don't think so, yeah. But it even appears, uh, like that idea of the poor, I don't think that's even the same. I agree. So if you take it that it is the same sermon, then you have to reinterpret this to mean the poor in spirit, and that changes the whole meaning of it. I would agree with you on that, yes. Does he talk about the rich and the... No. Not like that. I mean, obviously he has the statements about, you know, don't lay up treasures on the earth and so forth in chapter 6 starting in 19. So in a different form, maybe, but not like that. He doesn't have any of the woes. So this tends... I mean, those two tend to go together, the poor and the rich. I agree. Whereas in the other, it's poor in heart, or poor in spirit, and, yeah. and nothing about... Right. Riches, not in the, in those beatitudes. We'll right, them. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's better just not to try to say, well, this has to match up with this, and they have to be saying the same thing. Right. I mean, man, I preach the same basic sermons, you know, in a lot of places, but they're not the same exactly. And sometimes the situation, I kind of read, you know, kind of use some parts and restructure it and kind of make some different points. I take illustrations and I use them to illustrate different things sometimes. Why couldn't Jesus? That wouldn't be odd. I don't think it's odd at all. Jesus taught all over the place. He surely didn't have a memorized sermon. I'm assuming that he kind of adapted it to where he was. And it's the same... Lessons he's trying to teach everything. Right, similar, yeah. yeah right. Other thoughts? All right, how about 27 to uh, 27 to 28? What I say to you here, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who cur- curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So how do you treat people who mistreat you, who hurt you, who bug you? And you think about people at work, people in the neighborhood, people in your family. And how do you treat them when they really just aren't very nice to you? And, you know, how did Jesus treat those who mistreated him? You know, what, what was Jesus' attitude when they were crucifying him? That's our model. That's what we've got to think about. Um, so we've got to do good to them, you know, and bless and pray for them. You know, don't just say, all right, I'm not mad at them. You know, I don't have anything against them. I won't talk to them, but they're okay, you know. You, it's not good enough just not talk to it. I'm not going to hurt him. Well, he's saying, do good. You can't just be passive. You reach out to those who are your enemies, and you help them, and you bless them, and you pray for them, and you care about them. You know, you're almost like you refuse to let them define you as an enemy. You're going to be a friend to them whether they want you to be or not. They can't control you. 
thoughts and comments. So how do you reconcile that with, suppose it is a Christian that's been mistreating you, and you think that's sinful behavior toward you? Well, did they sin against Jesus? I think yes, you know, clearly. But did Jesus pray for their forgiveness and seek what was best for them and try to bless them? Yes, absolutely. That's us. You know, that's what he did for us. Now, did that mean he wouldn't point out our sin? Yes, he did do that. He does do that, but not because he's just really upset about it and he just can't stand what we did to him and he's going to make us feel bad about it. And if he can't, you know, if it's the last thing he does. No, he does it because he really loves us and he knows we've got to repent to be saved. So somebody who loves someone may be really concerned about what they've done because they're just concerned about their soul. But if they did it to us, our temptation is be resentful and bitter and you know it's really hard to pray for somebody that you can't stand if you believe that God answers your prayers you know God would you please bless this guy that I hate the guts of and I'm hoping he you know is, has a terrible you know time and whatever so I think this this is you know we just got to look at Jesus we just got to think man if, if, if Jesus treated his enemies the way I treat my enemies, where would I be? And, of course, verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. I mean, that idea that the pattern of God in Jesus has to be what shapes how we treat our enemies, I think that's, uh, that's clear. Other thoughts? All right, so uh, I'm going to stop here and we'll kind of work on this uh, complicated section starting at 29 next time. But that was good. Mm-hmm. Trying valiantly to keep up with ourselves in my studies. And so far, I've managed to do it. Not easy, but I've tried to do 